This is a conversation with Pat Ogden. Hi, Pat. Hi, Serge. So, Pat, how did you get to do what you're doing these days? Well, it started really in the late 60s, early 70s. I was teaching yoga and dance in a psychiatric hospital. And um, in the early 70s, I met Ron Kurtz, mm-hmm. and which challenged everything I'd ever been taught about uh, psychotherapy. Um, Ron really introduced me to how to integrate the body in psychotherapy and confirmed the intuition I had that working through the body could really help people, which is why I was teaching yoga and dance in a psychiatric hospital. So um, that was a huge shift for me, and I actually quit graduate school in social work to move out to Boulder with Ron um, and apprenticed with him. We traveled around together teaching, and in 1980, he and I and a few others founded the Hakomi Institute, and out of that grew some other psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I remember in 1981, Ron and I were having breakfast, and I said to him, I said, you know, I love Hakomi, but I'm much more interested in movement and posture and structure and how that contributes, you know, to to psychological healing, and he said, why don't you start your own branch of Hakomi and call it Hakomi Bodywork. So from 1981 on, I I had my own school in Hakomi, um, and gradually the work that I was developing uh, became more differentiated from from Hakomi, Um, and I, I got very interested in trauma. Uh, in the 80s and um, started to distinguish between how to work with trauma and how to work with non-traumatic issues. Um, and it just kind of took off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So from Hakomi to uh, uh, paying attention to posture, to movement, and paying attention to trauma, and that's how we got to a sensory motor psychotherapy. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'm trained in the Rolf method as well and practiced that work for for many years and also studied dance from the age of seven on and um, studied with Emily Conrad and Annie Duggan and Janie French with Rolfing Movement. Uh, so the, the movement piece was very, it, it, it is, it continues to be very important to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, the movement piece and um, and trauma. Would you say that uh, sensory motor psychotherapy is especially geared for trauma, or is for no? Trauma? I wouldn't. Okay. Although <laughs> well, that's the reputation we have, because it's very easy to illustrate working with trauma, much more easy than to illustrate working with attachment failure, you know, and, and attachment disturbances. But no, I, I would say that my work. Uh, uh, is in an overarching uh, umbrella of mm-hmm. attachment work um, and long, you know, longer-term attachment work. That's kind of my background. Okay. Uh, and the trauma work grew out of that. Okay. In fact, in our training program, our work with uh, attachment is our training is over twice as long than the work with with trauma. 
yeah, yeah. So, so um, then maybe let's talk a little bit of the framework. Um, uh, attachment, you know, problems with attachment, uh, and uh, and how sensory motor psychotherapy conceives of it and handles it. Okay. Well, we're really looking at the integration of the body, its movement and structure and posture, and how it shaped itself in the context of, of early attachment. So, you know, we know that the brain develops in that context, but so does the body. Um, a person will, a child, or even an infant, will abandon actions or distort actions that, that are not effective in producing the desired outcome. For example, proximity-seeking actions, such as eye contact, seeking proximity, reaching out. Uh, those actions, uh, if they're not met effectively by the attachment figures, they start to become distorted and they actually shape the person's you know, movement patterns. So when we're working, we're looking at those those actions that were abandoned as well as the beliefs that were formed and the strong attachment emotions, attachment-related emotions that, that, that really weren't regulated by attachment figures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the trace of it is left in the way the person moves, behaves exactly. in the present. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if we were, you know, understanding, of course, that no two sessions, no two people are alike, but is there a way to have a vignette about how this, you know, happens in therapy? Mm. Well, I could I could give you an example of a, a, a patient that I worked with a couple very recently. Um, he came from a very famous family. Um, his father died when he was a teenager of AIDS, actually, and um, which he never knew. He never knew that about his father. And this young man had been very depressed, unmotivated, kind of living off of his inheritance rather than finding any fulfillment, you know, mm-hmm. his own profession or his own relationships. And when he came in, you could just see that in his in his in his body. You could see the little slump in his spine, the little inward roll of his shoulders, uh, the constriction in his neck, uh, downward gaze of his eyes, um, not really, you know, grounded through his legs and his pelvis. Um, so as he, as he began to talk about his history, uh, this pattern became Worse, you know, and we could see it. So the pattern itself became an, an uh, exacerbated as we talked about its history, and it also became an avenue of exploration that brought up his deep emotional pain. You know, like as he went into the the pattern, his grief and sadness uh, uh, about his family started to emerge. And then as, 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 as that, as you, as you work through that, you know, then we can help his body shift to a posture and movements that are more, um, 
adaptive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what you're describing is that at first glance, just when you see the person coming into your office or in contact with him, uh, you, you're noticing from his body certain patterns that imply, you know, what, what there might be underneath. Then oh, as, yeah. then as he talks, uh, you notice that, uh, these body patterns are actually accentuated by, by what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk for that. I mean, I, I read bodies through, really through a Rolfing model. I'm mm -hmm. looking for that piece with gravity. You know, Ron used to teach this too. Uh, looking at, is a body in alignment with gravity? Are they able to use gravity to lift them up? Uh, as well as hold them to the earth. And then looking at action within that context, like does somebody move from their core out to the periphery? Or, or are, are they living more in their, you know, on the outside of their body, not really connected with the core? And you can see that in their movement. Mm -hmm. So like, like this young man, his arms are just limp, for example. They didn't have a lot of energy. Uh, um, he wasn't connected with his core. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. To me, that's that's really exciting, you know, to think mm -hmm. about how the body reflects and sustains the psychological patterns. Because then, then, as soon as you see that, as soon as you train yourself to see that, the body becomes an avenue for working them through. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that sense of, in a way, how the body has learned to negotiate its relationship with the environment, with gravity. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. Yeah, like for him, not getting support, you know, he kind of kept himself small. You know, he wasn't encouraged to be his full self and really take up space. And, and you could see it. As soon as you meet him, you could see it. Yeah. So there's a sense of there, um, um, you know, the difference, say, with somebody observing and say, oh, he's small or he's slumped. Uh, what it is is mm, this person has been lacking in support. Oh, well, you have to find out for them, you yeah. know, uh, like, like, like we can't make, I don't think we can, we can superimpose the meaning on the body. I, I feel like we can track the body and we make our kind of hypotheses, but then part of the fun of therapy is that you get to test out if your hypotheses are accurate. Yeah, yeah. And so you notice that part of, in a way, as he tells his story and you notice his reaction that, uh, you know, that gives you some reinforcement. Yes, and, and you start to explore it, you know, you notice that he's, as he talks about his father, his head comes down a little bit more, his chest caves in a little bit more, and so then you bring his awareness to that, mm -hmm. which is his experience, and then he goes into that caved in feeling and the grief, you know, connected with the father, etc. So, so, so you're really linking the body and the emotion and the beliefs. Yeah. That, that, that was shaped so early. So, so as he's talking, you're noticing, for instance, his, uh, you know, his head and, and, and you're mentioning it to him. Well, you're linking up the content with, with the body. Okay. So something like, do you notice as you're Relationship, talking? Relationship. If, he, yeah. if he's talking about an issue, you're looking at how does the body sustain that issue? Mm -hmm. Because it will. It will reflect it and sustain it. And 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 you uh, you you inform him of what you observe, or how do you do that? To well, Ron would call that a contact statement. You know, you'd say it seems like seems like you're you're, ch you're starting to collapse as you talk about your father. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And then if he's interested and curious, then you can you know, start to explore it further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, formula. No, no, just to get a rough sense of, um, of what it is. You know, for instance, whether uh, it's not something you keep for yourself. It's something you, you share, and part of it is, uh, is, is encouraging the linking for him of, um, of what he's talking about and uh, the body posture. You, well, not, yeah, you want, what I want, I want my, I want my, my patients to get really curious about how their body interfaces with, with whatever issues they're bringing in. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. You want to stimulate their interest and their curiosity in their body's organization. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So it's different with every client how to do that. Right, right. But so the general goal is actually to enlist their curiosity about um, about how the body is uh, is behaving as is, is managing as we're as they're having feelings or talking about things you can't really do body therapy unless the person's curious about the body yeah so I yeah. think it's a ther- it's a therapist's job to enlist that that curiosity and that interest mm-hmm. that's then the beginning of of doing therapy in such a way that the psychology can shift and the body can shift as well. So as you're doing that, um, you know, what are the kinds of shifts that you can notice? I mean, I know you said uh, you described the the big picture of how he started shifting, but, you know, what happens as you, you start linking it? I mean, what kinds of shifts do you notice? Well, it depends on the issue that you're working with, you know, like if, if, you're, if you're working with um, proximity, what they call, you know, proximity-seeking actions, mm-hmm. where it naturally goes to an attachment figure for support, uh, comfort, safety, etc. So many people grow up in environments where that wasn't, uh, those needs were not met by the attachment figure. So if you're working with those kinds of issues, then you do explorations around seeking proximity, simply reaching out or making eye contact or moving towards. You know, like there are a million ways people reach out. Mm-hmm. And it's so simple just to say, well, just try reaching out, what happens? And look at, are they, are they reaching out and holding back? One of my patients recently, she reached out, but a whole other body went back. Mm. So... Thought it was going. It wasn't an integrated movement. Um, oh, there's another man I'm thinking of. He reached out with a stiff arm, his palm straight down, and he says, "Why would I reach out? You know, nobody's ever been there for me." Um, others reach out with really limp arms. Others like with this energy, this intense energy, like clinging, seeking energy. So that. Any proximity-seeking action can be an avenue of exploration, you know, for attachment. And and you see this in babies. Like, have you ever seen Ed Tronic's videos? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see these little babies. They'll try all kinds of proximity-seeking actions. And the longer the mother has a still face, you see them, you know, they stop. They They stop them or they get frantic with them or they just... They give up, their little bodies collapse, they lose their postural integrity, and we see the traces of that in our adult patients. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the proxy- there, there are a lot of other issues, too. You know, that's just, there are yeah. a lot of other issues. It depends on the issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, so is uh, in uh, in in sensory motor psychotherapy is there the uh, attachment with the therapist a part of what is explored? Is there a sense of um, you know transference uh, explored in a? Oh, totally. Because it's always uh, it's always there, transference and countertransference, as mm-hmm. far as I. Can. Well, you know, and I, I've been really interested lately in Philip Bromberg's work. He's a psychoanalyst. Um, he just came out with a new book called mm-hmm. uh, called in the, in the Shadow of the Tsunami. And um, this whole idea of enactments where um, the therapist's history interfaces like hand and glove with the uh, with the patient's history. Um, it's so interesting to me. I just wrote a paper on it, actually, because um, um, these enactments are not only inevitable, you know, they can be used in a very positive way mm-hmm. towards, to, to, for healing and for insight and awareness for both parties. Um, and I find that fascinating because I grew up in the humanistic tradition, you know, where you're supposed to be able to provide a corrective experience, and if you find yourself judging your client or, you know, disliking them or not wanting to be with them or angry with them, you're supposed to kind of get over it. Um, and in, in this newer way of looking at things, all all that is uh, grist for the therapeutic mill because mm-hmm. um, it'll, it'll contribute to the inevitable enactments uh, and, and the working through that takes place in, within the relationship. So, so in a way, uh, it's almost better if there is something like this that can happen because there is more of the possibility of getting to the heart of the issue? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, I, 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 hate, to, I hate to say better. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen whether you want it to or not because it's, it's inevitable, you know. Yeah. So it's going to happen. Um, and I think it was Les Greenberg who said, you know, without the safety, therapy can't begin, but without the enactment, it can't really end. Uh, something like that. He said something like that. And, and I, I like that because the enactment is, is the empathic failure that, that enables a reworking uh, of, a, of an early issue within the context of the relationship. Okay, so we're totally, totally in an intersubjective model where both parties are going to bring their baggage and then it's going to happen, and the difference is that this time it can be reworked. It can be reworked and and really reworked for both parties. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is which is what's what's very interesting. Like with a therapist who is aware and curious and open, they also see their issues uh, that are interfacing with the patients, and they learn something new too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be appropriate to to mention an example in this context? Well, I, I'll, I'll give you an example from the paper I just wrote. Great. Um, with the with the patient that I worked with, whose mother was uh, very invasive, um, um, like I, I mean, I, this was a this was a consultation session, so I didn't know the whole history when I was working. And as she talked about her mother, her body got very very tight uh, and frozen, um, and she had some trauma in her history. And my thinking, this is one thing I'm really interested in: what's going on explicitly. Uh, in the therapist's 
in a therapist-patient relationship that, you know, the therapist can talk about. You can say, this is why I'm doing this, and I expect this outcome. And the outcome is, is fairly uh, predictable, but then there's the implicit track, which is really a body-to-body affective conversation that's going on underneath what's going on explicitly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think of it as there are really two journeys happening in the therapy hour. One is explicit, what you get, what you and your patient think you're doing together, but the other one's implicit. And so explicitly, I was uh, helping her feel that tension in her body in an attempt to evoke action from that tension because tension is a a precursor to action Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um so that was the explicit track but the implicit track is that um i mean in retrospect and and also through watching the tape uh i think i was pushing her a little bit i think that she found my questions um a bit invasive uh, and at one point, I kind of leaned forward. She'd closed her eyes in the in the therapy hour, and I kind of, I leaned forward and um, asked her just to open her eyes and make contact with me, and to see if that changed the freezing. Because she got really, really quite frozen, and it didn't shift, you know. Yeah. Um, and this was like three fourths of the way through the session, and then with this. Uh, Oh, what people would call probably a clinic, clinical intuition. It wasn't something I thought about or ration, rationalized about. Um, I asked her what would happen if I just closed my eyes. And that changed everything for her. Uh, and so I closed my eyes. I began moving my chair further and further and further away from her. And that mitigated the freezing and Beautiful. Brought, Beautiful. Yeah. Of, of movement. But see, the enactment was that she had a very invasive mother, so she interpret, you know, she, she would interpret implicitly other people's actions as invasive, even when they're, they're not meant that way. Yeah. I had a rather distant, um, mother, um, um, she was very reserved, German, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, as a child, I was always trying to reach her. Right. So there's our histories. I was trying to reach my patient. She interpreted that as invasive uh, and didn't respond to me, uh, and the more she didn't respond, the harder I tried to reach her, until what Bromberg would say, I woke up uh, in the middle of the enactment, implicitly woke up and tried something new, and it catalyzed the whole uh, uh, just an experience for her. Yeah. And in watching the video, you can see this body-to-body conversation, which is so, it's just so fascinating. No, it's beautiful. I love that example. And so, But what's interesting is that, as you say, watching the video, you can see it. But yeah. you did not have access to the video. There's something that happened. So we're not talking about interpreting the body movements from the outside, but uh, something happened uh, as an intuition for you yeah, that's right. Yeah, an intuitive flash, you know. Yeah. And it was only later that I really understood it. And I, I, that's the difference between working with what Ron always called indicators. You know, like you look at the body and you see an, an indicator that that points to childhood history, and then you work with it. Yeah. Okay. But you can only work with the indicators that that you're aware of. You can't work with the ones that you're not aware of. And the ones you're not aware of come from, you know, the implicit, that's the implicit journey that gets acted out. That's why it's so valuable to tape your sessions because 
you start to see how this implicit conversation is going on that you missed. But what I love about that example also is that, um, you know, as you, you pointed out, the two tracks, you know, that uh, the patient is coming from a mother who was invasive, the therapist is coming from a mother who was too distant. So right. as the therapist is trying to make contact and move forward, the patient is reacting, and we could have a loop where actually as the patient is reacting, the therapist could be actually further and further in the loop and going, you know, more forward. So what happened is that in this case, the therapist had the mindfulness to not be totally sucked in, you know, the um, reactivity to a uh, person is, is moving away, so I'm going to go forward. But at some level, to uh, become aware of the needs of the other person as their needs and respond to the needs of the patient as opposed to the old track. Yes, but I, I would say it's not conscious, no, though. No, not conscious, not conscious. No. no. And what's so interesting to me, it, as Philip Romberg says, he said enactments are always there. Yeah. They always happen. And if the if a therapist can be curious about it, rather than thinking that you should just try to get out of it and prevent it and all of that, if you can be curious, it, it can be a profound experience for both patient and client. Like like when I, I'm patient and therapist, when I uh, think about that particular session, if the enactment hadn't occurred, uh, there wouldn't be, have been nearly the transformation for the client. Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't. It, w it wouldn't have been able to deepen like it did, you know. So, I mean, the enactments are inevitable anyway. So we might as well start to become friendly with them and yeah. curious about them, rather than just trying to make them not happen or make them or judge ourselves for them happening, you know. Yeah, you know. But I'm, what I'm fascinated about is actually the the shift in the session, because mm -hmm. I can imagine that say uh, it would have gone on. And then after the session, you'd have thought about it. You come with it, say, "Oh, maybe this is what happened," and you know that's great. You can do repair work the next session, and you could have progress coming. But what I'm fascinated about is that without the conscious thinking, uh, at some point you said about three quarters in the session, you know, you felt the need to stop and to close your eyes. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it was just intuition. I mean, I yeah. didn't. I didn't go, oh, right, her mother was invasive, I should be backing off, and da-da-da. It was just this, this intuitive flash Alan, yeah. that Alan Shore talks about, you know. And, you know, enactments and long-term work, they can go on for weeks or months where you just feel stuck, mm -hmm. and you're not able to see your part, and you're, not, uh, you're just not able to really understand it, you know. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Bromberg says, he said, you know, in those situations, you just have to, he wrote a paper called Stumbling Along and Hanging In. Because you just, you just hang in and you try to bring as much goodwill as you can and you try to be aware, you know, and then eventually you, you kind of wake up yeah. uh, to what's going on. So, so in a way, there's an alarm signal that the sense of if you're in that stuck situation, uh, you know, maybe that you're actually in the middle of some kind of a, Mutual reenactment. I would I would say the therapeutic enactment is probably what's going on. Yeah. 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 And and uh, you know just um, again I like here is that in that example you're mentioning how uh, there is a physicality 
to... Well, that's what's so interesting. That's that body-to-body conversation that goes on implicitly that, that you can at least for me, I don't think, I don't think anybody can be aware of it in the moment. Because if you're aware of it, it immediately becomes explicit. Mm-hmm. And it's the implicit nature of it that makes it so rich and, and uh, revealing. Mm-hmm. I can, and that's why I, I love watching, I learned so much from just watching my own videos. Because mm-hmm. I see these little things that I do in my body that reflect implicit parts of myself. Uh, and then, you know, then the client reacts with their own uh, uh, movement and affect. And, and it's, it's just like micro-tracking, you know. They lean forward a little bit. I lean forward. They pull back. I tilt my head, you know. They shift their posture. I shift mine. Just these micro-communications that are going on every moment. So fascinating. And not just with, with body, but with, with prosody, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, my Beatrice BB does these, uh, you know, moment-by-moment view of uh, mother and baby interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so that very same pattern is there. And you're more uh, essentially, you, you notice that, that, that dance of um, you know micro attunement exactly going on. yeah exactly yeah yeah and see that I, I think I mean what's most fun about just being alive is all the discoveries you mm-hmm. know um, and and the discovery of that implicit conversation that goes on body to body you you learn so much about yourself as well as your patient if you're curious at that level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, obviously, this is something that happens, you know, subconsciously. How how much consciousness do you have in a given session of of paying attention to to the dance? I mean, other than tracking the person, tracking yourself. I mean, how what's what form does it take? Moments of awareness of that. Well, that's a tough question because. Uh, when you're in the relationship with the patient, there's, what's going on between you uh, is, is, is this dance that you have to allow to happen. Like if you try to watch your body and watch all your movements and you try to watch all their movements and listen to all of their changes in inflection. If you try any of that, it disrupts the dance. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a flow that happens when you're with a patient that you're drawn to what you're drawn to and you're not drawn to what you're not drawn to. And you, you can't uh, control that. Um, I mean, you could stop and talk about it. You can say, you know, I've been really drawn to this tension in your left shoulder. I keep I keep noticing that. I wonder if we should explore it and da da da. But but you can't try to control what goes back and forth between the two of you because if you do, you stop dancing. Right. You know. So yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm aware of my body, especially I'm aware if my body gets tight, or I'm aware if my my patient. You know, 
like pulled back if I lean forward, but I'm not aware of all the little subtleties that happen because that that's that's a part of the dance that you that you can't. Uh, it's part of the the implicit conversation that if you try to be too aware of it, you ruin the dance. Right, right. So to some extent, it's simply knowing that it's there and that uh, it's going to manifest in your intuition in some way. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And and to be aware of when things feel when when the dance is stuck or it's not going smoothly or whatever, and then and you know to bring that up. Like you say, yeah, I feel something's not not moving between us. So do you feel that too? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so- Jessica Benjamin talks about the third that's created in, in, in the therapeutic diet, and it's kind of like that. Like together, you're creating a third, you know, a, 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 a different um, relational dynamic that's beyond just the two of you and what you're doing explicitly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that consciousness of not just being the two of you, not just being the diet, but there's that third. That's created by the interaction. Right. Yeah. I find that all very interesting. It's so mysterious, you see. I mean, even as we're talking, you can't pin it down. No, I know. The words are, the words fail to it. Yeah, it's just a, there's a sense of having some experience of it and we create bridges to, uh, to fragments. So hopefully the two experiences, you know, coincide as we're talking and we have some little fragments of communication in the middle. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, the, the most important thing is just to be curious about it mm-hmm. and interested mm-hmm. about the discovery of, of yourself in relationship with your patient. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm hearing very loud and clear from you is a sense that, uh, you know, there's a curiosity about the patient, but there's at the same time a curiosity about yourself Absolutely. as a person, as a therapist, that still is very much there. So, right. you know, it's not a question of... Uh, I know and I'm helping this person, but there's a there's a process that as a therapist you're very involved in and the curiosity is there. Yeah, right. And you're curious about what the two of you are doing together. Mm-hmm. Because it's gonna be different with every patient, you know. Yeah. You're yeah. curious about what's happening within this particular dyad. So maybe maybe to shift to something, you know, a little bit different, but you know, what happens in a case of uh, dissociation? You know, and, 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 and I know Maybe so what? How do we, you know, what differences are there between, uh, you know, mm-hmm. maybe different types or different ways to handle dissociation? I've been interested in 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 that topic because I think the word dissociation is used so differently in our field that it's almost lost its meaning. You know, mm-hmm. one way to look at it is. That when a parent doesn't recognize a part of us, um, like if they don't, if they don't really recognize how hurt we are, that we tend to put our hurt aside, uh, and we tend to dissociate from those self states that encompass hurt, just because they weren't recognized by our attachment figures, and if they're not recognized, you know, there's no place, there's, there's not a home for them to live in. Mm-hmm. Right, so all of us have those kinds of 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 wounds. There's certain parts of us our attachment figures didn't recognize, and so we we put those parts away, and 
in in a lot of language, um, people say, okay, those are dissociative self states, mm-hmm. right? Those are not me parts of the self, because they can't live if 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 the attachment figure won't receive them. So, uh, but that's very different from trauma related dissociation, which is. You know what Charles Myers would say that he was a World War One and Two uh, psychiatrist and psychologist. He wrote a book called Shell Shock in France that I just love, but it's out of print. <laughs> mm. But he said, you know, when the, shul- the soldiers came off the battlefield to his hospital, which is right there, you know, just off the battlefield, he said they would be reliving their trauma. And I think of that as as fixated in defensive actions of fight flight, freeze, pain, death, and attachment cry. Mm-hmm. And and he said, but sooner or later, a part of them would emerge where they would try to get on with daily life. Um, and he said, but he said, there, there's a dissociative split there, and these two parts of the self can't coexist. And if you think of that in terms of uh, um, Pankset's work with emotional operating systems or behavioral systems, what we call action, what we call action systems, these psychobiologically evolutionarily prepared systems like exploration, attachment, play, caregiving, sociability that, that all mammals have, mm-hmm. right? If, if we're going to respond to the arousal of those biological systems, um, defensive systems will interrupt your response. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't feel in danger and play. Yeah. You know. So, so to me, that's a real different kind of dissociation, where there's the coexistence of two or more structurally dissociated parts of the personality, um, where one one part is rooted in, in defense and traumatic reminders and reliving trauma, and the other part. As Myers would say, is well tries to get on with daily life, and they're rooted in more in action systems or behavioral systems of daily life. Okay, so they try to get on with exploring the world, playing, having sex, being sociable, you know, yeah. take care of the kids, etc. Um, but 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 that functioning is always disrupted by traumatic reminders, which stimulates the defensive systems. You know. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that's that's a very different. That traumatic dissociation is very different from what's also called dissociation, where there's a part of you that wasn't recognized by your attachment figures. So, so the in the uh, dissociative self state, it's just it's almost like a part, um, you know, has not been fed, has not been nurtured, has not been developed. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and in the structural dissociation, there is a sense it's a major threat to your existence. Yeah, it's a danger or a life threat, you know. Exactly. I mean, if you think of it in terms of defensive subsystems, I think that's the best way. Like, you know, Porges' model is so great with that because he talks about the polyvagal hierarchy where if social engagement is doesn't assure security then and you 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 feel endangered you know your fight flight responses come up and but then if you feel your life is threatened then the dorsal vagal system is stimulated and, and you go into like a hypo aroused state mm-hmm. so 
those extremes of fight, flight, attachment, cry, and hypoarousal really have to do with, with danger and life threat. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, the, the lack of recognition doesn't stimulate those defensive responses in the same way, although they could. Like if your parents didn't recognize a part of you that um, uh, needed support, okay, if that were powerful enough and strong enough, it would turn into neglect, which would also be uh, a trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not like it's just one or the other. But like I was working with somebody recently who this part of him, um, um, if we if we look at it in terms of not being recognized, his, his parents just didn't recognize that he couldn't do he couldn't he couldn't do stuff on his own. Mm-hmm. So he became very self reliant and he put his neediness aside, right, and, and just became really self reliant. And in, in the session then that, that part of him that was needy started to emerge as he and I together recognized that part. And I think that's a lot of what happens in attachment-oriented work through the, the therapist help the patient and together with the patient, patient provides the recognition of the part of themselves that they put aside, so then that part has a place to live, you know. Mm-hmm. And then that, that again, you know, when you know, when I say that they put that part aside, they don't just do it cognitively; yeah. it's, it's physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so that's really that sense of, uh, um, you know, in a way, think of it as um, um, a plant that hasn't been able to bloom because of lack of light and cold and so on. And you have light, and you have. Uh, warmth and there's maybe the mirror where it can see itself and then you can, it can bloom um, as opposed to something that is a major threat to the system. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's it. Um, so, you know, maybe in a way jumping a little bit to something a little bit different, but we're talking about this, we're talking about... Uh, Attachment. I'm wondering if some of the work you do uh, in group, in a way, what what do you know? You know, it, it's a you know what what is that something that actually helps attachment issues? What happens in a group? You know, I think so. I've been working together with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein in Los Angeles, who's a child and adolescent psychologist, and we've written a couple papers now. One on you know, sensory motor psychotherapy with, with kids and adolescents and one on group work using sensory motor psychotherapy. And I think it can be really helpful in groups, um, especially, well, with children and with adults, you know. And, and we do some of the same things that we would do with adults, but they're done in... Uh, a group context, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, oh, one group uh, that Bonnie runs is with uh, teenage girls who've all some have been abused, they've all had trauma in their histories, and they start to learn about um, how their animal defensive responses, you know, kind of take over in their lives, and how when they're well, they haven't been able to prevent trauma, like with an adaptive action, mm-hmm. like, you know, a boundary action, like pushing away or being able to use your legs to get away, then those actions often 
form turn into what Pierre Genet would call substitute actions. Right? So, for example, one uh, 17-year-old girl in the group who's her parents got divorced, and then she was she was um, adopted into uh, a lesbian family, mm-hmm. and the the, the her, her mothers got divorced, and she went to live with one mother, and her brother went to live with the other mother, and her mother was killed in a car accident, so she had to go back to mm-hmm. her other family, and her brother was very very violent, and um, her her the she calls it the other mother was also you know traumatizing to her and she started cutting herself and she would punch her fist through the wall um, and, and there's group context as the girls started talking about defensive reactions they started to understand she started to understand her behavior uh, and I, I, I watched a, a video of this where one of the girls was saying okay well you can't fight back about your, against your brother because that would be a stupid thing to do mm. you know so you just freeze and, and you kind of become immobile and the, the, the 17 year old going yep that's it and so then the girls as a group uh, start to experiment with defensive actions like pushing actions, boundary setting actions saying no with your body, etc., um, so that this young woman can start to ha- experience that capacity in her body. Now, then she can choose whether or not to use it, but she knows, she, she knows she's got it. Right, you know? right. So, and so she can choose the situations where she uses it. And, and what we found, like in these kinds of situations with her, for example, the cutting really stopped after that. Yeah the group work and and there's something very beautiful about these teens supporting each other you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and also with the little children there's there's another incident with uh two six-year-olds one who was sent to bonnie for um because he was very aggressive at school he was always hitting kids and invading kids and this other six-year-old little girl who who's parents were divorced she lived in a small room where she had to share a small sleeping space with the two older brothers who made her sleep on the floor and she wouldn't speak uh, became very very passive Um, and so we did the simple exercise of the two children just walking towards each other from across the room or one walking towards the other and the patterns just came out like this this little boy kept invading this little girl he couldn't track the signals that she wanted him, that he was too close to her. Mm. And so, so they're learning in the group context how to say no. He's learning how to notice her body, you know, yeah. notice what in her body tells him he's getting too close. It's just wonderful to see these little children start to learn that very young, you know. Yeah. So I think it can, it can do a lot of attachment and repair. Like obviously this little boy his boundaries are violated too. And he doesn't have a sense of, of boundaries, so he's learning it in the context of the group. Those are just two examples I could give you. No, it, it, feels, it, feels, it feels very rich as an example because uh, it's, a, it's a sense of visually seeing, um, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, you know the, the, the going forward, the boundary, uh, of seeing the um, lack of reading the internal signals Right. Uh, but also of seeing the developing of uh, patterns, you know, in a way that haven't been nurtured before, the possibility. So it, 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 and I can see the complexity 
of something both about the threat in the attack and the invasiveness, but also the lack of nurturing of the possibility of, you know, defensive action. Right. And, and pushing uh, back. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So it feels very, very rich as an example, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so we're starting, we're really developing sensory motor psychotherapy for, you know, kids and groups and also working with the parents and the children, you know, the same uh, which really offers a lot of possibility yeah. for shifting, for change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's an exciting new development in the work and with sensory motor psychotherapy along with starting, just, just beginning to try to articulate our work with couples so many so many of us do work with couples but we've never really written about it or articulated it so that's mm-hmm. a that's also a next uh a new development great <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun you know? yeah it sounds like it i mean it feels nice uh, certainly one of the things that i'm uh, i'm getting as we're talking is a sense of excitement and curiosity and fun yeah uh, from you and that's coming very very powerfully yeah, yeah, and I have a great team too, you know, people who are really, really interested in bright and so it's fun, it's fun to work together. I love collaboration. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. So is this a good place to, uh, to, to end this conversation? Sure. Sounds good. Okay, well, thanks, Pat. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.